You're listening to This Month in HIV, the body's monthly podcast discussion about the latest, most important developments in HIV. For more information on this podcast, including a full transcript, visit us on the web at www.thebody.com slash HIV month. Hello, and welcome to This Month in HIV. My name is Bonnie Goldman. With the remarkable success of HIV treatment comes a renewed focus on other health issues that plague people with HIV. You've probably heard a lot about heart disease and certainly lipodystrophy in HIV, but there's one issue that affects up to 50% of people with HIV that you may not have heard of, and that is bone disease. With me to explore this issue is Dr. Todd Brown. Dr. Brown is an endocrinologist and an assistant professor of medicine at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. He's also one of the top researchers when it comes to bone disease in HIV-positive people and has been researching this issue since 2004. Also with me is one of the Body.com's online experts, Dr. Ben Young. Dr. Young is an assistant clinical professor of medicine at the University of Colorado, and he's also a consultant physician at Denver Infectious Disease Consultants. And as such, he'll be able to speak to what he's seeing in the clinic. Welcome, Dr. Young and Dr. Brown. I want to start with you, Dr. Young. What is the biggest issue you're seeing in your practice today? Our patients are living much longer, much healthier than they did in the earlier pre-heart and and early heart era. Long enough now to begin to worry about long-term survival and issues related to aging, all of which are good things. In the mix of all of this, though, about four or five years ago, we started seeing a few patients one or two a year that had fractures that were really unexplained. Compression fractures of the vertebrae were the sentinel symptom of this problem. At first, we really thought that they were just outliers, unusual people with unusual problems, and not part of a larger trend. And it was really Dr. Brown's analysis in 2006 that brought the magnitude and the frequency of this problem to head. I think the biggest issues now are how to screen people, diagnose people, and how to best optimally manage people who may have bone disease and HIV, again, an area that I think is going to be a very important topic, particularly as a patient's age, into the next decade of their lives and and so on. What percentage of the patients in your practice have bone disease? We'll probably touch on this later, but it was really because of Dr. Brown's meta-analysis that we became concerned about silent bone disease in our practice. That is to say, thinning of bones and brittle bones, osteopenia and osteoporosis respectively, that are silent. What we detect in patients is fractures, and obviously from a preventive medicine standpoint, we'd like to identify patients who are at risk of having very serious fractures or fracture risk before they fracture. So we embarked on a program to try to do just this, namely doing dual energy x-ray optometry or DEXA scanning, and have screened about 80% of the patients in our practice. Uh, what we find is entirely sanguine with uh, Dr. Brown's earlier analysis, which is over 50% of our patients have one form or another of abnormally thin bones. And, and, and this is a, a really striking number, much greater than many, many of the other complications that we worry about. When you say silent, what do you mean? Like hardening of the arteries doesn't cause symptoms until there's something bad that happens. A patient who has osteopenia, for example, should have no symptoms whatsoever. A patient who has osteoporosis frequently doesn't have fractures right up until the point that they fracture a hip or a vertebral body. The real problem is recognizing risk and trying to improve bone health uh, before there's a fracture. Dr. Brown, can you share your experience? What made you do the study in 2006? There had been scattered reports of low bone density among HIV patients, and 
there was some question whether or not it was related to HIV itself or any retroviral therapy. We had conducted a study when I was in training at Georgetown, and the size of it wasn't large enough really to, to draw firm conclusions about the most severe losses in bone mineral density. So that's why the meta-analysis was an effective way to do this so we could look at osteoporosis rather than a combined category of osteopenia, which is lower than normal bone mineral density, and osteoporosis. We did find about a 15% prevalence of osteoporosis. The average age was probably low 40s across the various studies that we looked at compared to the respective HIV-negative control populations, this was about three and a half times the prevalence that was seen in those populations. Could you explain what is osteopenia and osteoporosis? Bone density is probably the best way or the most available way of measuring, evaluating fracture risk. And bone density using DEXA, or dual X-ray energy absorptiometry, the osteoporosis and osteopenia are really designations or classifications based on postmenopausal women. And a lot of this research has been done in postmenopausal women just for the simple fact that this is where the burden of fractures lie. When you look at bone density tests, DEXA scans, the measure that most people use is something called the T-score which is the number of standard deviations that a person's bone mineral density is away from a gender-matched young normal population. If you are more than two and a half standard deviations lower than a young normal population, then you have osteoporosis. Osteopenia is if you are between one standard deviation and 2.5 standard deviations, less than the young normal population. This is just trying to measure how thick your bones are. That's right, the amount of mineral that's in your bones. This designation, uh, as I mentioned, is mostly has been validated in postmenopausal women, but has been applied to other populations as well. Postmenopausal women are the most likely to lose bone because of their hormonal changes. That's right. So it's really not common in the general population. Right. There's not a lot of good standard data to understand exactly in, in the average person what the bone mineral density is. Dr. Young, do you have a hard time explaining this to patients? Actually, I think that people get a, I mean, osteoporosis is common enough in the general population that people have heard about it. My mother, for example, had osteoporosis, not so precise term of brittle bones, often will use terminology of uh, abnormal but not diseased bones, much analogous to HIV without AIDS, for example. It's not particularly complicated for people to understand. Sometimes the T-score, Z-score, standard deviation language can confuse people. But really, it's just a question of how far away from your expected bone density you are. Once you're two and a half standard deviations below that, then we define that as having osteoporosis. What people should realize is that these scores, the standard deviations, are a continuous variable in a way, so that the risk of, of fractures is continuous. It's a function of both the strength of the bones, if you will, and the likelihood that one is going to fall, a larger component that also influences the risk of having a fracture. In general, people do understand this. It's not that complicated to me. And explaining to them why I'm concerned about assessing them for bone health, it's not as complicated as some of the other things that we do in HIV medicine. 
When I was reviewing the cause of bone problems in people with HIV, I found a long, long, long list. It's long-term survivors, people are thin, it's women, it's people who took protease inhibitors, the people who are taking Viriad, the drug that's in Truvada and Atripla, people who have low testosterone, people who have no subcutaneous fat, people who have kidney disease, people who smoke, people who drink alcohol, diabetics, older people, smokers. I mean, it kind of includes everybody. So Dr. Brown, what do we know now? Who's at risk? I think when we're thinking about the causes of low bone density or osteoporosis in HIV patients, it's useful to separate things into into three categories. One is the effects of chronic infection with HIV. The second is the effects of antiretroviral therapy. The third is the effects of traditional causes of osteoporosis, so things like smoking and alcohol use and low body weight, which may be more common in people who are HIV infected compared to those who are not. It's an amalgam or a combination of these factors which lead to the decreases in bone density that we see. What about the long list of things that I said? If you're a drinker who also smokes, does that put you at greater risk? Absolutely. Both of those are risk factors for osteoporosis in the general population and may be more common in some HIV populations as well. Those are people who you may be more concerned about in terms of screening recommendations, for example. The other people that you had listed, people who are thinner, tend to have lower bone density. Males who have not enough testosterone will also have lower bone density. The kidney disease issue is complicated because low bone density that you measure by DEXA in someone with kidney disease may not represent osteoporosis. So there are other reasons why patients with kidney disease may have uh, low bone density. What about the theory that Viriad might be causing some bone density issues? There is pretty good evidence that Viriad is associated with lower bone density. I should say that a lot of the best studies come from people who are HIV positive, who've never seen antiretroviral therapy before, and they start treatment and looking at what happens to their bone mineral density with starting treatment. And it's pretty clear from a whole bunch of studies that bone density drops in the first two years of antiretroviral therapy, but those drops are larger if you're on certain medications, and Viriad is one of them. Why that is, is not entirely clear at this point. It might be due to some of the effects that Viriad has on the kidney. Your bones are made up mostly of collagen, which is sort of the glue that holds it together, and then mineral and the mineral is phosphate and calcium. And part of the problem with Viriad might be that your body loses phosphate and the place where the body goes to to get the phosphate back is the bones, and that may thin the bones in that way. But there's a lot of research that needs to be done to really understand what's going on. What about protease inhibitors? There was some thought that it might have been protease inhibitors causing some bone density. Yes, you look at studies where people start antiretroviral therapy. Some have shown that patients who start antiretrovirals with certain protease inhibitors have a more profound decrease in bone density. Most likely there are differences among the protease inhibitors 
in the effects on bone density. It's something that really needs to be looked at more uh, in detail. Let's go back to the basics about bone health. Dr. Young, you talked about that you're looking at all the patients in your practice. How does someone find out if they have healthy bones? You mentioned DEXA scans. Are there symptoms that you might have? Is there something else that would tell you that you might have bone disease? The key part here is that, for the most part, bones don't cause symptoms until they fracture. Probably the most important thing to stress to patients is that you largely don't have symptoms and could have bone disease. And in fact, there's obviously a lot of interest in trying to determine which specific risk factors may place one person or another at greater risk of having bone disease. And obviously, there's a lot of research interest in trying to sort out the specific mechanisms of this. The large surveys suggest that this is a common enough problem in a way that I don't really care what's the specific matrix of risk factors that puts one individual at risk or not, but rather that it's common enough in our practice that we see this with quite a bit of frequency. Indeed, it was with a collaboration with Dr. Brown in a CDC-sponsored study called SUN that we really first became aware of the specific problems in our patients. Namely, in our practice, about 50% of our patients have bone disease, about 10% have osteoporosis. Virtually all of these patients were living their lives just fine before we uh, did the specific testing to look for it. So namely, to your point, there are methodologies to measure the calcium content and the density of the bone. The best and most quantitative way to do that is with these uh, dual X-ray or DEXA scans. And in fact, that's what we are now embarking on doing for all the patients in our practice. And as we expand the number of patients that we have screened from the initial 100 that were in the clinical study uh, to something in the neighborhood of four or 500 individuals, the numbers remain just that. About 50% of our patients have abnormal bone mineral density, and it's quite a bit of concern. The problem, again, is that one really needs to do that test to have the best measure of it. There are probably some alternative strategies that are worth mentioning. For one, many people do get x-rays for one reason or another. The information in those x-rays can often reveal abnormally low bone mineral density, but one has to be mindful of that and to ask the radiologist. We have occasionally picked up abnormal bone density on chest x-rays, for example, that were done not looking for bone density, but rather to look for pneumonia. A fracture that is unexplained from a not-so-traumatic event should not just be written off as, oh, that was just an unfortunate fall or a weird step off the curb that broke your ankle. But one should ask the question, is that a patient who might actually have abnormal bone density? Are Dexacans generally covered by insurance and Medicaid? To my surprise, they're actually covered by most insurance companies. And I should add that the patients who have other significant risk factors, namely patients who have been on long-term corticosteroid therapies, patients who have abnormally low testosterone levels, just for example, or patients who have had abnormal fractures in the past, all of those patients have access to DEXA scans, both by insurance companies and by Medicaid. The Medicaid question in HIV is a problematic one because it's not well covered, if, if at all. There are people trying to improve that. But for now, suffice to say that uh, if, if one has third-party insurance, it's pretty easy to get a DEXA scan. The doctor just needs to know to ask for it. Medicaid, again, is variable and depends a little bit on state funding and such, but usually not covered. Would you say that everyone with HIV should get a baseline DEXA? This would be controversial, but in our practice, that's our standard. There are no U.S.-based guidelines for this, and I think Dr. Brown and I have even talked about this, that this probably does remain a bit of a controversial point. I summarize it this way. One out of every two patients in my practice probably has abnormal bone density. The cost of doing a scan is roughly $100. It's about half the price of doing a viral load test. From a knowledge gained in a preventive medicine perspective, the information I get from 
doing a $100 test to look at bone health is probably more valuable than doing a fourth or fifth viral load test in a patient who's otherwise doing well. I differ a little bit here. I think that a bone density test is a decent way to assess fracture risk. But the problem that you get into is that people who are less than 50 really don't fracture all that often. So my feeling would be to, if we were talking about universal screening of HIV-infected patients, I would suggest screening people over the age of 50. Even if someone has low bone density by DEXA, and they may be at increased risk of having a fracture compared to someone of a similar age who has normal bone density, the chances that they're going to have a fracture are just so low because young people generally don't have fragility fractures. This is a nice point of debate, and I'll differ with you again a little bit to make a couple of, just a couple of points. Number one is that the largest study on fractures comes from, actually, you know, you're an author on this, I believe, right? The Massachusetts study group comparing HIV negatives to HIV positives. The fracture rate for sub-40-year-olds who are HIV positive approximates that of the risk of a HIV negative 50-year-old. So even that analysis suggested that the fracture frequency of HIV positives who are young approximates the fracture frequency for HIV negatives age greater than 50. Moreover, to me, the biggest concern is that young people are still in a period where they can improve their bone health with improvements in modifiable risk factors, including calcium supplementation and normalizing vitamin D levels and such. So there's an opportunity, if we identify those people earlier, I'd hate to miss the opportunity to improve their bone health before they reach their bone density maximum at age 40 or so. I think that from a cost-benefit analysis, while I think the fracture absolute frequency is, yes, relatively low, there's still an opportunity to intervene in a preventive medicine strategy. The counter-argument to that is that a lot of the strategies that can be taken to improve bone health should be undertaken in everyone. So maintaining adequate vitamin D intake and adequate calcium intake, refraining from smoking, refraining from excessive alcohol use, all those things you want to be doing in everyone. The concern that I have in screening people who are at low fracture risk is that they might be inappropriately put on medications that uh, have long-term side effects for their bones and they may not actually benefit from them. Let's turn to supplementation because you both mentioned it just now. So is there a role for vitamins? Which vitamins would you recommend? Dr. Brown, I know you've done some studies on vitamin D and the importance of vitamin D. Sure. Vitamin D deficiency is very common in the general population and in HIV patients as well. It's associated with all kinds of medical problems. Bone density and fractures is one of them. The current recommendations are that everyone should be getting at least 800 international units of vitamin D daily. And that's probably not enough given the high prevalence of vitamin D deficiency. There are some work being done in the general population to change those guidelines. I think that more uh, like uh, 1,000 or 1,500 international units would be appropriate to 
get to adequate vitamin D levels. I know some people take prescription vitamin D weekly or monthly. Is there a difference between doing it daily or weekly or monthly or taking prescription or non-prescription? Not really. There are different formulations of uh, similar compound vitamin D. You can either get it from prescription, something called ergocalciferol, or over-the-counter vitamin D is generally something called cholecalciferol. Either of them can be used. The problem with big-dose supplementation of vitamin D is that there is a risk of overdoing it and becoming toxic on vitamin D. So if you're giving yourself large doses of vitamin D, and that would probably be more than about 2,000 international units a day, you probably want to talk to your doctor or provider about that. What are the risks? If you have very high levels of vitamin D, you can get too much calcium absorption. So we should back up a little bit to say what vitamin D does. Vitamin D's its main job is to allow calcium and phosphate to be brought in from the gut. If you have too much vitamin D on board, your calcium levels can go too high. That's the real problem. Do you recommend most people to take calcium pills with their vitamin D? Most people do require calcium. The current recommendation is to take between 1,000 and 1,200 milligrams of calcium. Depending on people's diets, they may get close to that. If they're a big milk drinker, they could be able to get that in their diet alone. But most people need uh, somewhere between 600 and 1,000 milligrams of calcium supplementation a day. Is there any way to monitor your vitamin D levels and your calcium levels? There is a a relatively easy test to, a blood test to to measure vitamin D, something called the 25-hydroxy vitamin D level. It's a test that can easily be done. And this is what really tells you whether or not someone has an adequate amount of vitamin D. I was looking at different recommendations and some said it should be over 30 and some said over 25 was enough. Which one is it? So there's a lot of controversy as to what constitutes adequate vitamin D. Right now, above 30 or 32 is considered vitamin D sufficient. Between 20 and 30 is considered insufficiency, and less than 20 is considered deficiency. Some people bring the lowered number down, saying that there's a severe deficiency state of less than 10. Then some people think from looking at at big studies in large populations that the optimal level of vitamin D is somewhere around 40 to 50. But generally, people who are less than 30 probably should get their vitamin D levels up. What would be the best way to do that? With vitamin D replacement, as you had mentioned, either by prescription or by over-the-counter vitamin D. But I understand that doesn't work for everybody. There was a small study I saw that where It worked for 49% of the people, but not 100. We don't know if they were taking it. We don't know a lot of things. The biggest issue is compliance. And I think there was a study, and this may be the one that you're speaking about, that was presented at the retrovirus meeting last year, where they looked at various doses of vitamin D and how much they changed your vitamin D level. The main issue that I saw with that study is that the compliance was not very good. So if you take vitamin D, generally you'll be able to see a response. Some people are more resistant to supplementation, meaning they need more vitamin D to get their vitamin D levels up. 
some antiretroviral medications may chew up vitamin D. Favarins, for example, Sestiva, it has been associated with a, a study that we were working on showing that efavirenz is associated with lower vitamin D levels. Why that is isn't entirely clear, but people on efavirenz may need more vitamin D. So people taking efavirenz or a tripla should be taking a greater supplementation of vitamin D above the recommendation? We don't know that uh, exactly now, but it looks like people who are on those medications are more likely to be vitamin D deficient. So extending that, they may need more vitamin D to reach the same vitamin D level as someone who's not on those drugs. Could I ask you a question, actually? We've been talking about vitamin D, but I'd like to get your your thoughts as to whether checking a vitamin D level should be something that should be part of baseline or annual laboratory assessment for people living with HIV or not. Probably. I mean, the, the real problem with the vitamin D question is that we know that a lot of people are deficient. Even in the general population, a lot of people are deficient. What we don't have a great sense of is whether or not replacing vitamin D can really improve your health. We think that that's true. I think that's true, but we don't know that for sure. So I think that that's why people are sort of reluctant to recommend universal testing of vitamin D levels. Personally, I have a very low threshold for testing vitamin D levels in my patients. It's relatively inexpensive. You get information that you can't get from other sources. And the treatment, although we did mention the the potential problems of vitamin D replacement, it's relatively well tolerated and, and relatively inexpensive. So I think that for those reasons, the threshold to test vitamin D levels in patients should be pretty low. It is true that that there are certain people who are more at risk for low vitamin D, which is people who live in the north, who have dark skin, things like that. That's absolutely true. There's a big seasonal variation with vitamin D. So vitamin D levels go down by about 10 points in the winter compared to the summer. There's a big variation depending on the color of your skin. Patients with darker skin will invariably have lower vitamin D, again, about 10 to 15 points, lower than patients who have lighter skin. Those are very important factors as well. I guess one easy way besides supplementation is just find 15 minutes a day to be in the sun. That is a good, you know, we probably spend not enough time in the sun, and the sun time that we do have oftentimes we, especially in the summer, we put sunscreen on. So we're trying to protect our skin, but it, it is important. And, and winter sun up in the north may not be enough to really increase your body's ability to make the vitamin D. Let's just remind people what's the bad thing about having low vitamin D. Sure. The biggest issue, and that's why we're talking today, is, is the effect on your bone health. Most of it is because your body, as I had mentioned before, if the vitamin D levels are low, it won't be able to absorb the building blocks of bone, that is calcium and phosphate. And your body doesn't like this very much. What it does, if it doesn't have enough calcium and phosphate, is that it goes to the bones to try to maintain the calcium and phosphate levels because the bones are the biggest store of calcium and phosphate that we have. As a result, the calcium and phosphate gets leached out of the bones and the bone density decreases. So that's the biggest concern. There are some other 
issues that are related to vitamin D. Patients with low vitamin D levels, and this is particularly older patients, are more likely to fall than those who have normal vitamin D levels. That's probably due to vitamin D that's working on the muscle. Is that a balance problem then? It's probably a muscular strength problem rather than balance. We know from many studies, this is outside of the HIV realm, that supplementation with vitamin D can decrease the risk of falling. I understand there are also risks about cardiovascular disease. There have been a lot of studies that have shown that the risk of cardiovascular disease is higher in people who have low vitamin D. The risk of diabetes is higher with people who have low vitamin D levels. The risk of some infections is higher in people with low vitamin D levels. So there are a whole host of bad outcomes that have been associated with low vitamin D levels. What's missing is, with the exception of bone health and falls, are good studies to say if you replace vitamin D, you're going to decrease those outcomes. We've been fooled in the past by trying to use information gathered by these observational studies and making recommendations about treatment. Hormone replacement therapy is is a common example. So we should wait before... Specifically in that population, for example, there's not any great evidence that someone who has a heart attack should be tested for vitamin D. Having said that, the risks of treatment with vitamin D are relatively low and it's, it's relatively inexpensive, so I think the, the threshold to treat is somewhat lower. What's the role of exercise and weight-bearing exercises? Does that help build bones? Absolutely. Your muscles pulling on the bone will cause bone to grow. Anytime you exercise your muscles and your muscles pull on the bone, it's going to be good for the bone. Weight-bearing exercise, either weight training or not even weight training, even just walking or jogging or anytime you put stress on uh, your muscles flex against the bone uh, would be helpful. Does this mean just getting like a five-pound weight in your house and walking around with that? Would that be a nice first step? I think any level of activity, maintaining your level of activity is really important. What you don't want to do is be sedentary. It doesn't necessarily need to be something that you would consider exercise. For example, there have been some studies showing that gardening, so an activity that's relatively physical, is actually quite good for the bones. It doesn't necessarily need to be dedicated exercise. How often should this be done during one week? Probably three or four times a week for at least a half hour. Does it help build bone by two inches a year? Or is there some measurable it, it, effect? There is. It sort of depends on what exercise you're talking about. You get this information trying to see what the effect is by looking at studies. Oftentimes, the studies really aren't long enough to see a, a big effect uh, or the, the types of exercises are, are quite different. I wouldn't be able to put a number on exactly how much bone you can build. But there's no question that maintaining your level of physical activity is a really important part of bone health. Why do you think so little attention is being paid to this? Dr. Young? The short answer is I don't know. I think that there has been a compelling amount of evidence that really started maybe even as far ago as 1999-2000 that certainly the bone mineral density issue was, was very common in our patients. I think there are two points. Number one is that the fracture frequencies to date have been low and in part owing to the relative younger age of our patients. 
it takes a large patient population to see sufficient numbers of fractures to begin to connect the dots in terms of fracture risk. I think that there's a disconnect between the recognition of, of a common, let's say, laboratory abnormality and the potentially very serious clinical event, meaning fractures. Even in our clinic where we had these fractures, it took us a number of years to begin to realize that there was something connected between the fractures and the, the abnormal bone mineral density. The second one is, is a little more challenging, I think. It, it speaks to the idea that, for better or worse, a lot of the continuing medical education that we receive is often sponsored by pharmaceutical companies, and pharmaceutical companies have largely not connected their bone health franchises with their HIV franchises. That's not to say that everything in the world is driven by pharma, but it, it is a large component of the drum beating, so to speak, so that we heard a lot about heart disease that was amplified by uh, medical education sponsored by companies. And I think that, again, this one has fallen between the cracks. There is a palpable increase in the numbers of scientific articles and posters at conferences and such related to bone health. So I think that it is starting to very significantly increase in terms of people's awareness, and I'm grateful for that. Dr. Brown? I agree. I think that more and more attention has been paid, and as the uh, understanding gets better, more people will become interested. The other issue that we haven't really talked about, I think Ben might have mentioned it earlier, is sort of the non-skeletal risk factors for fracture. Most fractures occur when people fall, and HIV-infected patients may be at higher risk for falling, for reasons that aren't related to bone density at all. For example, peripheral neuropathy is a big risk factor for falling. And we know that HIV-infected populations have a high risk of peripheral neuropathy. So I think that those issues also need to be addressed and also need to come out in consultations with patients who are concerned about bone health. There are some practical things that people can do to decrease their risk of falling. For example, wearing sturdy shoes, making environmental changes, picking up piles of paper, making sure that there are no rugs that slip, really watching themselves walking on slippery surfaces. All these things are also very important in preventing fractures. Why would peripheral neuropathy make someone more likely to fall? You rely on your feet. When we walk around, we don't really realize what we're doing, but we have a sense of where our feet are in space. So we can walk down the street and we can talk to people while we're walking down the street and we will automatically bring our foot up to go over the curb. But it's because we have a sense of where our feet are in space. People with peripheral neuropathy may not have that sense as well. And so they might be more likely to stumble and fall as a result. So that compounded with low bone density would cause the fracture. Absolutely, absolutely. We're almost near our end here. I noticed that the European HIV guidelines just came out, and they um, have a whole section about bone disease diagnosis, prevention, management, but yet there's no recommendations in the American guidelines yet. Are you hoping that the U.S. guidelines will include something like that? Yeah, so I actually just literally came back from the European AIDS Clinical Society meetings in Cologne, Germany, where they did indeed present what I believe to be the first management guidelines for bone health prevention and such in in HIV patients, and they speak specifically about issues relating to the screening for bone disease, vitamin D and calcium supplementation, and so on. I think that these are a very welcome advance and provide good guidance for clinicians as to 
how to take care of people for their long-term health. I'll point out as well that the Europeans were, I think, quite prescient, including guidelines for managing other health issues in their compendium, which included management of diabetes and, li- and lipid problems, management of cardiovascular disease, cancer management, and so on, as part of a comprehensive guideline. If you suggest to my colleagues, if not to patients, that they can go to the uh, European Aid Clinical Society a website and actually uh, take a look at these guidelines. I haven't seen the published version or the presented version of the guidelines, but I did see an earlier draft. One important thing to realize is that even in the general population, uh, European recommendations for screening for osteoporosis are different than the U.S. guidelines. I think it's important to keep this in mind when you're trying to apply the European guidelines to U.S. populations. Good point, Todd. Actually, I'd love to hear your thoughts. The principal screening tool that they recommend is the use of the FRAX, F-R-A-X, equation, which is available through online calculators and is adjusted for both race and country. And and I wanted to get your thoughts as to whether that's a reasonable tool for us to be using absent uh, DEXA scans. FRAX starts with FALLS Risk Assessment Tool. Fracture Risk Assessment, right. This is a way of trying to figure out how much for a given person, what's their risk of having a fracture in the next 10 years. This gets at this idea that I was mentioning before between your risk in relation to someone your own age versus your absolute risk of having a fracture. And that's what this gets at. You plug in risk factors into this web-based algorithm, and anyone can do it themselves. If you Google FRAX, F-R-A-X, you log on to the site in Sheffield, England, and you can plug in risk factors. And at the end, you press a button, and you get the 10-year risk of fracture. So it's broken down in two ways, either all osteoporotic fracture or hip fracture specifically. You can look to see what your risk of fracture is, and you could either use it in conjunction with a bone density test, and that's how FRAX is used in the U.S., or you can use it to determine who should get a screening DEXA scan. By using it without a bone density test, you use the, uh, just your body weight and height as a surrogate. There are differences in how the people in the U.S. and how people in Europe use this tool. The concern that I have is that most of the data that FRAX was built on, and it's and a lot of work went into trying to figure out the factors that are, are associated with fractures and the various populations, but most of the data is in people greater than 50. I have a little, some reservations about using those data in making clinical decisions because the reference database from which FRAX calculates the fracture risk really wasn't very robust at those low ages. So that's my general concern with using FRAX. How do we get healthcare providers to add the prevention and management of bone disease to their long list of things they're already doing, sort of as a primary care thing? I personally would take an age-stratified approach. I think that for older HIV-infected patients, and I use 50 as a cut point, I think that There should be emphasis on obtaining a a bone density examination, a baseline bone density test, in addition to talking about other issues related to bone health, calcium intake, vitamin D intake. 
activity level, smoking cessation, making sure that the uh, alcohol intake is not excessive. And these latter factors, not the bone density issues, would also be a discussion that could be had with younger patients as well. But other people have different strategies in terms of screening. I agree with largely all of the points except for the, again, I accept the uncertainty about the age threshold at which you deploy screening methodologies. I believe that the data is consistent with this, and there is at least some data that suggests that it's also prevalent in younger individuals. I certainly caution people from drawing too many conclusions from individual anecdotes, but through these earlier studies, we identified people who were below age 25 who had no obvious risk factors who had osteoporosis. Thinking prospectively from the perspective of how much harm is done by trying to screen and address secondary or reversible causes versus the harm done by ignoring the potential risk and having fractures, I, I will err at the moment on the side of more aggressive screening and prevention. But I accept that the, the data set to date, national guidelines to date, um, don't address the risk-benefit equation for, one, for men with bone disease, and, and secondly, people of either gender who have HIV and, and bone risk. So there's a lot of, of, of unknowns and a lot of need to improve, but at least for the moment, this clinician's view of this is we'll try to address the concern with as many patients as possible, and uh, if appropriate and relevant, then we'll DEXA scan them. And- Just to follow up on one idea which hasn't come out, we all reach our peak bone mass at around age 30 and bone density declines thereafter. Your bone density at age 55 or 65 depends on whether or not you reached your peak bone mass. For people who are less than age 30, it's a really crucial time to build bone. There's concern and some studies showing that uh, there may be a failure uh, in HIV-infected children and adolescents that they don't get up to that peak bone mass. I think that the approaches in terms of calcium and vitamin D are really important. There are some concerns about using DEXA in this population. It it, uh, can be sort of difficult to interpret uh, clinically, so that's one of the big drawbacks. Dr. Brown, is there any ongoing or future research that you're particularly excited about? I think that the most important thing, there are a couple areas of research that are important. The first is really trying to nail down the actual risk of fractures. I know that at this year's retrovirus meeting, there are going to be some studies that will look at this in more detail, and I know Ben is part of one of them. But I think that this is a crucial area to try to understand really what the risk of fracture is. We can talk about bone density and DEXA scans, but what we really care about at the end of the day is whether people are breaking bones and what the risk factors are for breaking bones. I think that looking at some of the mechanisms of why HIV-infected patients may be more likely to have lower bone density and have an increased fracture risk, I had mentioned that there is a drop in bone mineral density in the first two years of antiretroviral therapy. Why that is really is not clear. Generally, inflammation is considered to be bad for the bone. With antiretroviral therapy, markers of inflammation invariably go down. So why would you get a decrease in bone density? And this has really seen, been seen consistently in many, many studies. So I think that that's a very interesting thing to look at. And of course, the 
goal here would be to try to prevent this drop in bone density to see if there are various agents that may be less associated with this drop in bone mineral density. And also, can we do things to mitigate or decrease this loss? For example, if we supplement people with calcium and vitamin D, can we decrease the amount of bone that's lost in the first two years of antiretroviral therapy? Then I think that trying to understand bone disease for aging HIV-infected patients is crucial. I talked briefly about non-skeletal, so risk factors not related to bone density that are very important in fractures, so mostly fall risk. So I think that those issues need to be clearly studied in HIV patients. And also I think that to get more data to try to make better decisions about who should be screened would be very important and sort of to go through some of these cost-benefit type analyses to see if it really makes sense on a population level to screen people with HIV infection across the board with DEXA scans. I guess we'll get some more information at the end of February after the CROI conference. That's right. That's right. Thank you both for taking the time to talk with me and for providing such a terrific update on bone disease and HIV. The opinions expressed by hosts or interviewees in this podcast do not constitute professional advice should not be considered substitutes for professional services, and do not necessarily represent the opinions of Body Health Resources Corporation or its sponsors. Please see the full disclaimer online at thebody.com. If you have comments or questions, please contact us. You've reached the end of this month in HIV's program. To read the transcript or let us know what you think of this program, please visit www.thebody.com slash HIV month.